This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrat, and today I'm having on a guest who's been on the show many times before, but today it's for a very different reason. Tom Ernst is a Toronto-based film critic and writer who typically comes on our show every Christmas time to talk about Christmas movies and the like and, and great TV series, especially during COVID. We needed lots of those, and we always have a great old time. But today he's here because he wrote an incredibly inspiring, heartfelt, and compelling memoir called The Wild Boy of Wabamick, which totally blew me away. And I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about the book, I didn't think it was right for Finding Your Bliss, but because it wasn't about movies or television. But then I started reading it. And really, I mean this when I say I was transported, hooked, and quite honestly blown away. And to use broadcaster Ian Brown's words, the wild boy of Wabamick is a harrowing, yes it is, heartfelt, fascinating, and thoroughly original and readable memoir of adoption and abuse and the art that can come of them. The sexual abuse that Tom Ernst endured as a child from the ages of 7 to 17 is tragic, shocking, and heartbreaking. But what is most incredible is that his story is ultimately one of hope, in spite of one of the most horrific stories of child abuse I think I've ever heard or heard described. He somehow not only survived it, but soared above it, carving out a career as a renowned film critic, a respected broadcaster. How did he achieve this? In spite of a system that failed, a community that looked the other way, and a family that kept silent, Tom Ernst triumphed. I'm fascinated to know how he did that. Tom is best known to audiences as the host, interviewer, and producer of television's longest-running movie program, Saturday Night at the Movies, and Bell Media's Making Movies the Canadian Way. Currently, his film reviews can be read on OriginalSin.ca and NorthernStars.ca. Tom's first book, The Wild Boy of Wabamick, has just been released from Dundurn Press. Congratulations. He joins us today. Tom, welcome back to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you, Judy. That was a tremendous introduction. Thank you for that. Of course. Tom, from the moment I started reading your book, I was gripped and hooked instantly. I'd like to read the first paragraph for our listeners. That'd be great. Dad didn't care much for Catholics, but I wouldn't know how much until my sister married one. Up until then, I wasn't even aware we had an opinion on Catholics. Although looking back, I recall dad being angry at Bing Crosby for starring as a kindly priest in the 1944 film Going My Way. There's no such thing as a good Catholic priest, dad would say. My sister Anna was marrying James in a Catholic church. On the day of the wedding, dad announced that he'd be damned if he was going to set foot inside one of those priest-invested monstrosities and that Anna could walk herself down the aisle. And that's how the book begins. And you're in it right away. And of course, as the memoir goes, your father disappears and has to be found and is found. And I love when you wrote, I wanted to kneel too. And you're back at the wedding here. Because how often do you get to kneel in church wearing your best suit? But my kneeling made dad so angry that I thought he would reach over mom and clout me a good one or worse, yell at me right there in front of all these Catholics. And so right away, you have a glimpse and some foreshadowing into your dad's character. What made you choose this place to start your book? It's interesting because it's not originally where I wanted to start the book or even try to start it there. I had an amazing editor who worked on it. And you might remember or know Russell Smith, who wrote, ah, forgot the title of his famous book that shot him to uh, infamy. But he writes for the Globe and Mail, and he's a terrific, um, how insensitive is the name of his book. And he writes for the Globe and Mail and works at Dunder and Press, and he acquired the book. And he sort of held my hand throughout the writing and the rewriting. I originally started with a scene that's not in the book at all Hmm. of confronting a, a, a snake when I was just a little kid. And that too would have been an interesting place to start. But I think, as you pointed out, I think this really sort of shows a hint of what's coming down the road. It also gave me an opportunity to be 
to start the book a little lighter because I find it light. I remember my reactions about being in this Catholic church. I remember wondering why don't we like Catholics? They seem fine to me. So I, I was able to sort of not only hint at where my father was at that time, but also where my mind was at that time. And if I <laughs> dare say I was the innocence, I even found my own innocence to be even a bit charming <laughs> when I look back. And so that's that seemed to me a, a perfect place to begin the book. Incredible. And, and it's just, it's so well written. And there's also so much humor, which you kind of need because the subject can be very dark and very disturbing, but there's humor and there's lightness of being and there's you, you know, and it really, it really yeah. comes through. You kept your story, Tom, a secret for your whole life and something finally propelled you to want to tell the story of your adoption and what's happened once you were adopted by this family, this seemingly wonderful family. Can you tell us what made you finally share this deep, dark secret that you kept to yourself all of these years, a secret that really you, you were petrified to share with anyone? Yeah, the, my biggest fear throughout my childhood was not my father. It was being discovered uh, of what was going on. And I feared that one day I would forget that and tell someone. Worse, I feared that one day I would write a book about it. And uh, here I am, exactly what I feared. And kind of, you know, it's interesting when you think about that, or at least when I think about it, what we fear the most is often maybe what we need the most. Mm -hmm. And I needed me to not be silent. I needed me to, to speak out. And it wasn't easy at first. And even now, I still recognize that there are people in my life who who wish I remained silent. And they're, they're good people, and they're people that I, I, I love. And so I, I'm sad that I had to, to make them sad in the process. But I knew I had to tell it because I had a daughter, and I have a daughter. And that alone is reason to sort of confront these fears and be open about it. Because when you keep it a secret, it just fumes inside you. And it comes out in awful ways. You know, I wasn't always a good, happy-go-lucky guy. I was, I was traumatized. I was, uh, did ugly things and, and responded in ugly ways. And, and so when, when all that sort of surfaced and I realized what was going on in my life and I realized I had to get control of it, that's when I knew I had to speak out. Do you think when your father developed Alzheimer's disease, and especially when he died, that that gave you the freedom to finally tell the story? Was that around the time that you said, wait, I think I can do this now? Yes, absolutely. And it still was out of fear of him. He died when I was in my, I think I was in my 40s, late 40s. Wow. And even then, up to that point, I was still fearful of him. Mm -hmm. uh, he can get very angry. And I hadn't seen him in years. I never visited him once when he had Alzheimer's. And I think being, being free of that absolutely allowed me the ability to write. There was still, there was still my mother. Um, she has passed away prior to the book coming out, but she knew that the book was being written. So hmm. yeah, I, I needed to get rid of all those things. I wish, I wish I hadn't those in some ways. I wish I had written it sooner. I wish I spoke out sooner, but I, I didn't and I have now. But there's part of me that thinks it would have been great to be able to confront him. I, I feel in some ways that he, he kind of got away with it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, there's a scene in the book with your mother that I want to talk about after. But it's hard for me to imagine that the man who took over LEO's Saturday night at the movies, the renowned TV and film critic who comes on this show with so much wit and humor and lightness, really, is the same person underwent this horrific experience like part of me almost wondered is this fiction at times because it was mm. it was too horrible to to imagine and you share in pretty intimate detail what happened the first time your adopted father said come and sit on my lap and you were only about eight years old and your mother was away in the hospital what did you think at that time as a young kid and when it happened again and again did you ever just think about running away yeah i always thought that but i also thought that to do so would have been ungrateful you still are in the, in the, the mindset that they are your parents and, and they, they are to be respected. I, it never occurred to me that I had a good reason to go to the police, a good reason to run away, a good reason to go to my neighbors and say, this is happening. Or even my sister, who is much older and was married with her own kids at the time. These were all options open to me that I just did not think were, you know, I was worthy of. 
I used to think, and, and this this always like floors me when it when I I realize it. I used to think that I wish I had a reason to misbehave. I wish I had a good reason to run away, you know, but this just didn't seem to me like it was a good hmm. enough reason. It oh it seemed God. to me because in essence he wasn't beating me up. That happens later, but I wasn't being beat up on a daily basis. He was kind to me in many ways, and he gave me gifts, and he took took me to movies. So it was confusing. So I never thought I was justified in acting out. Mm -hmm. Can you explain, Tom, the character in your book that shows up in your room as a young boy, the wild boy of Wabamit, who's almost like that angel or devil on your shoulder who tells you, run, don't take this. Who is that talking to you? Is that your alter ego? Is that the little boy that you were when you were found and, and became adopted? Can you tell us about this very significant character in your book? Yeah, I really like him. And he is the angel and the devil. <laughs> He's both things. He, he, and he is who I imagined I w- would have been if I had stayed where I was. Now, there's no way of telling exactly who what that life would have been like. It may have been awful, impoverished, certainly. It couldn't have been worse. (laughs) I think that's who that kid, that child was. The wild boy is an alter ego of sorts. I used to always imagine what if I was someone else. And when I imagined what if I was someone else, this is who I imagined myself to be. This kind of tough, disrespectful, foul mouth quite frequently. He's foul, isn't he? The language he uses embarrasses (laughs) me sometimes. You needed it. You're like, yes, yes. Infiltrate (laughs) Tom and get him to do this. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. That's who he was to me. And and he was there. He wasn't there physically. I didn't actually see someone there. I wasn't, I didn't go into a, a multiple personalities, which is frequently happens to people who who have uh, trauma, childhood trauma, and other traumas. But I invented him. And uh, I knew that he would have been a kid that I would have been if I had stayed where I was. There's a moment in the book that personally I find very touching. uh, And that's when I meet my birth parents. And they tell me that they did what they could, but they were basically told that it was better for myself and my sister. And they asked me, did they do the right thing? And the the look of hope in their eyes, I, I couldn't have said anything else, but yes, absolutely. You're a very good person. You know what? You're a very <laughs> good person. And that's what makes this even more devastating to read because you are such a good person. And it, it killed me to see that little boy, Tom, being treated this way. And even that, and even the, later in the book, the moment with your adoptive mother, where she, she asks you the big question, was it really that bad? And then you list all the wonderful things that you had in your childhood. And then she asks you again, was it really that bad? And you say, no, it wasn't. Because you, you see maybe the look of hope in her eyes, because she, of course, knows what's going on. Or you think mm-hmm. she must have some sense of it. But she, it, yeah, it, me. it's one of those mysteries for me, whether she knew or not. I don't imagine she could not have known. That, that seems to me impossible. You study film, you study character, character development. What could have possessed her if she did know to sit by and watch this unfold and not come to your rescue? It, um, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because if she didn't know, then I, I hate to demonize her. But if she did know, I could only imagine fear. I can imagine that, um, she wasn't equipped to live without him, mm-hmm. which made no sense to me. But, and I also think, and this, and this is, would be really demonizing her, but I, I fear sometimes in my, in my, my darkest moments that, uh, I wasn't her child. I wasn't her birth child. And so the sacrifice was not as bad. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, later in life, she seemed to forget about the, because I told her, and her reaction, of course, was more about shock at what she proposed could have been her uh, her confusion about her husband's sexuality. Now, I think we all know that child abuse has nothing to do with sexual preference. It's about power and, and uh, selfishness. So she was less concerned about me 
and more concerned about, well, how did he become that? I didn't think he was like that, mm-hmm. meaning I didn't think he was gay. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, there was no sense in actually trying to work this through with her. She was already in her 90s. So yes. by the time, you know, she was on the last decade of her life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, finding out whether she knew or not, she claimed she didn't know. I find that very difficult to imagine. And even if she didn't know, I still think it was her responsibility to know, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I check in on my daughter all the time to make sure she's okay. Of course. Of course. Yeah, there's something that was went very, very wrong. There's a pivotal moment in the book where Dear Abby, the iconic advice columnist, writes a column of, of childhood sexual abuse. And I almost felt that the personality of your father would have burned the copy of that newspaper article or ripped it up so that you couldn't see it. But he left it for you, which almost felt more like abject cruelty to me. And not only did you read it, but he even asked you if you had read it. What was it like when you saw what had been happening to you finally being described in print, in black and white? And was part of it knowing that maybe you weren't alone for the first time, that there were other kids that were enduring what you you were enduring? I think it was the first time that I recognized that it was a really a hateful crime. Mm-hmm. But my dad always let me know that it was hateful. Sorry, I'll refer that. My dad always let me know that it was something other people wouldn't approve of, you know? Hmm. And that's, so it felt like, you know, when, when you're, like when I'm with my friend Doug and we would go out behind, the, it's not in the book, but if we go out behind the barn and smoke cigarettes or something, we knew mm-hmm. it was wrong. We knew it was bad for our health and we, we just knew, but we did it. And I kind of right. thought that this was the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't give it this sort of huge a criminal offense or anything. And then I read that. And then, you know, the person that wrote the letter was actually in their adult life wondering if they should tell people about this, his, his, the woman he was going to marry. So that's, that's what first made me go to my dad then and say, well, this, look at this, you know, maybe this isn't so, maybe this is worse than we think it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that time, I was also thinking that I was an equal partner in this, Hmm. that I was, you know, completely uh, as much to blame as he was. Matter of fact, I wouldn't even be, I'd be surprised, not surprised to, to, you know, think back and realize that I probably thought I was even a greater culprit, that somehow there was something about me that was egging him on. There's so much shame and blame that goes along with sexual abuse and especially in children where even where you know you're the innocent victim, you're the child, you're the little kid, you're not the perpetrator. And even though you, you are the innocent one, you internalize it and somehow think that it's your fault. And that there's something about that that just really got me in the book, that that was one of the worst moments was that not only were you having to endure this, but having to think that you were, that you were guilty in any way, which you clearly, in <laughs> not even one millionth were. And yeah. how did you come to the realization? Was it through therapy or through time or all the above reading about it what ultimately made you go oh my god i was the innocent child and i was victimized and abused terribly years of therapy and 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 years and years and years uh, decades of it and the hardest thing my therapist had to contend with was the fact that i kept making excuses for my dad kept making Mm. excuses for them and never once did I, was I able to say, oh, that was awful. I kept saying, wasn't so bad. You know, like I, I still got to, you know, go to the movies. I still got to do this. I still, they put a roof over my head, you know, all these oh, other things. And it, it, like I was, I would think I was in my 40s before I actually really started to see how dark it is. And I will say, writing this book and hearing people's response People assumed that it was therapeutic for me to write the book. Maybe. I don't think the writing itself was therapeutic. What's been therapeutic is hearing people's reaction. And so now I'm, I'm listening to this and people are actually telling me, wow, this is unbelievable. This is extreme. Never because I lived it, because I survived it, because I found ways to get from one day to the next. 
It just never seemed that way. And to recognize, you know, how evil this was. And, and I, I use that word. I, I don't use that word lightly. And I even have a hard time using that word still to this day mm-hmm. in reference to this. But what's therapeutic for me now is, is listening to this and listening to how many people say we would have stepped in, you know, I have a neighbor, very good. Well, Doug's parents, he's in the book. Doug's parents, uh, well, one of them has passed on, but the, the mother who will be 101 her next birthday wow. told Doug, she said, well, I guess that's why he came over to our house so often. I, we would have gladly taken him in. And that felt so good. That felt so wonderful to hear that. It lands in such a deep place. It's so deeply acknowledging. I want to thank you also for inviting me, Tom, to your book launch. I'm sorry I wasn't able to attend, but I wondered what it was like to share your story with what I heard was a jam-packed crowd at the Flying Horseman. What was that night like for you? And was it scary to read from the book to that standing room only audience? Like, you know, and I know a lot of them are friends and colleagues and family, but what was that like to say those words out loud in front of your world? Yeah, it's the Flying Bookstore. I don't think it's Flying Horseman. I, I actually <laughs> think I might. <laughs> yeah, Flying Horseman. That would be a good name for it. Good name. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, they were friends and colleagues, and I think that might have made it harder. Prior mm-hmm. to it, I was a wreck. Prior to it, I was thinking, no way am I ever doing this again. Am I ever writing a book? Am I ever doing a book launch? The anxiety level was just intense. And I did it twice, once in Waterloo and once in Toronto. But thankfully, my wife was incredibly supportive about it and, and my daughter and my niece too, who's living with us. So between the three of them, they were able to <laughs> sort of talk me off the ledge. Boy you up, boy you up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So wow. Once, I, once I got into it, the Toronto one, which is the one that you were invited to, Heidi Von Plesk, who is an actor and author and a wonderful woman and supported me throughout all the writing of this, she did an interview with me and that really put me at ease. And I read a portion of the book that was pretty innocuous. I certainly didn't read anything that was that would have been disturbing or upsetting. So I read something that I thought was rather funny and charming. And so it went over quite well. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to say, happy to say that at the Flying Bookstore, gosh, you know, it's not the point of the I'm not remembering what it is now. Um, but uh, Flying Books, maybe. At Flying Books, it's on College Street in Toronto. They sold out and they had to get new, more books in. So wow. let's keep that ball rolling. That was That's- nice. I'm not surprised. When your father, Tom, became a born-again Christian, he suddenly turned on you and started being even more abusive and not before blaming you for everything that had happened. And so the last time he really abused you, I think you were around 17 years old and you were a fully grown man. You'd been away for the summer. You'd come back. You were a man suddenly, not a boy. Can you take us back to what happened when you returned home? Yeah, that is a tough one. And it's interesting that you bring that up now because just last night a friend of mine sent a photo to my wife and I of me when uh, he's he's been a long long time friend of me when I was 17. Hmm. He said oh I found this picture and it was me of when I'm 17 and I looked at that photo and um you know it it, it was really uncomfortable. I think going away that summer which is something my mother initiated. This is another hmm. reason why I think she knew what was going on. She initiated me getting out of the house for the summer. And I think it saved me in a lot of ways. And I became strong. I became more confident. I was with a group of guys that uh, we were a team. We worked well together. We liked each other. You know, it was really, really special for me. And so I came back what I thought was a a new man. And yet the moment my dad started Mm -hmm. up again, I I felt helpless. You know, I, I just gave in. You know, and at some point during that, he recognized that I was no longer a child. Mm-hmm. Now, he claims it was because he was a born again Christian. I think it was because I was no longer a child. Mm-hmm. And then he, he blamed me and as if Satan himself was, was there with him. Mm-hmm. And the rest is all described in the book. And it was both harrowing for me, but also I knew at that moment it's over. It's over yes. finally. Wow. But I was upset that he got to end it. All the times I tried, 
and I couldn't. So I thought once again, he, he stole the power for me. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's, I don't know about that. I'm sorry. I feel like he knows. Mm. I feel like this book is there. Yeah. He knows. Yeah. It was it, that I think of everything that happened that stands out as one of the most harrowing parts for me because I was a man and yet I still couldn't do anything about it. And I, so I recognized just how weak I was, even though I had this wonderful, wonderful time of, of empowerment, it wasn't enough yet. Yeah. And yeah, so he's the one who got to be, you know, to take control. And, and, and that haunted me for years. I want to talk to you, Tom, about how I really see this book as a film. But first, we're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll be right back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. Hi, we are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740, and I'm here with film critic and now author Tom Ernst, who wrote a book about the abuse he suffered as a child. And Tom, I mentioned this to you on the phone that I think this book could become a film. It's so vivid and evocative that I can actually see these characters. And it would be especially fascinating to see how the phantom wild boy would appear in film or if he he would appear. And you can really imagine the character of the mother, the sisters, the father, the best friend and all of it. Did you see this in a filmic way as you were writing it? And since you really are such a film person, did you imagine this as a film from the outset as you were writing the memoir? Not as I was writing it. I certainly tried to keep it literary, but it's impossible for me not to incorporate cinematic moments in it. Um, mm-hmm. I did think that maybe the span of the book is too big. It's only 248 pages, but it goes, you know, 40 years, 50 years, you know, practically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I do think I would love to see it as a film. And and if it does, I would love the wild boy to be very much a part of it. Because I, I think he is the spirit of the story. <laughs> he is what is buried deep down inside me that I tried so hard to bring out in myself when I, I needed to. And uh, in, in ways, the wild boy, although he's a made up character, he's exactly who I needed to be and exactly who I had in order to survive. Mm -hmm. What was your writing process like? Were you like at your computer 10 hours a day, you couldn't stop writing or was it hard to to sort of make it work? Like how did you, how how long did it take you and what was the writing process like? Took me many years to write it. I started it off many times as fiction, completely fiction. And then I decided that there's no way that it can be. And then I made it what was creative nonfiction. So I invented a few things and put in some truths. And it was Russell again from Dundurn Press who said, just make it a memoir. Just take out everything that's not real other than the wild boy. And the wild boy is real. Uh, he just doesn't exist in our realm. He exists very right. much in an inner realm. But writing is my bliss. You know, writing mm-hmm. and film is my bliss. So, so to sit there and do this, it wasn't, as I said earlier, I didn't think that I was purging or making myself healthy or anything. I was enjoying the process of this. I was enjoying, you know, and it sounds weird, you know, why would I go to, you know, enjoy going to such a dark place? And I had friends who said to me, why are you writing this book? It, you know, why would you purposely relive this? And Mm -hmm. the answer is I never stopped living it. There was no reliving. There was no forgetting. There was no moving away from it. It was always there. So mm-hmm. I was getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it in the best way I knew how, by writing, 
daily. And I did do it daily. And it did take wow. me years. And there were 12, this is the 12th rewrite that you have in wow. your hand. Wow. And when I say rewrite, it isn't just correcting errors or adding a scene. It's scrapping 300 pages and starting all over again. Oh my goodness. But I love it. <laughs> did you feel somewhat vindicated? Like when you wrote, like your writing is so evocative and so precise and you really see this um, you see this happening this is why i kept thinking it was like a film i really could imagine watching this this film and i just wonder did you feel when you finished a great paragraph or a great page or chapter a sense of vindication like yes i really described that and got uh, that off my uh, chest certainly not Certainly not. I wouldn't say vindication. Certainly not vindication. I, I, what I felt when I wrote a really good paragraph was the same way I suppose a singer might feel when they when they sing a song and they know they've hit every note correctly. Uh, so it wasn't exactly vindication. I feel vindication from the response I get from people. You know that mm -hmm. sort of resonates that way with me. The process of writing and writing a good paragraph or writing a good sentence or describing something well. You know, I don't know who it's, who said it or first because many people have said it since, but writing is rewriting. And mm -hmm. that's, that's where it came. So nothing ever came out that, that I thought was brilliant that wasn't changed, you know, that right. wasn't manipulated <laughs> and, and, and changed somehow. So even now I'm writing a second book and even now every time I come up with a good sentence, I go, yeah, I think it's good now. <laughs> who knows what I'll think a month from now. Wow, that's fantastic! You're gonna, you're gonna have to come back on when that that the second book is done. I'm so impressed. You know, <laughs> when we talked about this book, and I said this off the top, and I realized it wasn't about showbiz or entertainment, but it was a deeply personal account of the abuse that had been inflicted on you as a child. And I wasn't sure if it was right for this show, which is about bliss. Yeah. But ironically, it is, and it was. Because as brutal and devastating as this was, somehow you managed, and I have to be honest, I can't get over how you did this, managed to turn around your life, becoming this successful film critic, television broadcaster, getting married to a wonderful person, having a wonderful child. How were you able to find the will to go on, let alone to thrive in the way you have? Because I really thought someone who's gone through this would end up in a lot of ways, but it wouldn't be where you are. And it, mm. and. And I know you did a lot of work, but what do you yeah. think ultimately gave you the resilience and the ability to, to go on and to thrive and to soar, not just to thrive, but to soar, to survive it and to really live a life that's, that's, that's an incredible life. I guess the alternative just wasn't acceptable. You know, the alternative wouldn't have, yeah, it, it just went, it wasn't acceptable. So I, I, I needed to. I needed to find a way to make this life work. And first of all, you're right. I married a, a, an incredible woman. I have an incredible daughter, but I can't take any credit for how wonderful they are. They are wonderful all on their own. And I had nothing to do with that. But I, I think what happened to me is, first of all, going to this camp when I was 17 and working with these kids and uh, peers and finding out just how wonderful life could be. And that was that summer. And I thought, I want to relive that. So I started to go to the YMCA camps in my neighborhood, the Kitchener-Waterloo YMCA. And I met the most amazing people and the most amazing wow. friends who really, I just thought, I like their life. I like what they have. How do I get that? And I realized there were a lot of things I had to deal with first before I, I reached there. But those people always stayed my friends. And I, and I can't say enough about Doug, my friend in the book. Yes. You talked to, briefly about my humor, and I'm so glad you found the humor in the book because I intentionally put it there and not everybody sees it. Yes. And I, I, I love that you did. I, I, I give credit to Doug. Doug is the funniest guy I know. And, uh, you know, I picked up a lot on that. And mm. my sister, who I adore, you know. Valerie, Valerie in Valerie, the book. Valerie in the book. Yeah. Uh, she she always had cared about me and always wow. you know took me in and supported me now she too was confused about things and didn't respond correctly and i'm thinking about you know her saying please don't tell anybody when in fact i should have so mm -hmm. all those people and all those incidents in my life i just embraced and mm -hmm. i'm so grateful there's so many good people in my life you included, Judy. 
You know, there's people right, I meet and, and that, uh, you know, inspire me and uh, encourage me. And that's how we did it. And years of therapy. Thank God. Thank God. What advice do you have for other people who've gone through something like this, as you did, who may not be able to express themselves by writing a book or being out there? What is your advice to people who are holding on to a secret like this? Okay. The fear you're feeling about being exposed, the certainty you have that if anybody finds out, you will be hated and despised. That doesn't belong to you. You know, so I would encourage anyone to speak out, but make sure you're speaking out in a safe environment. Make sure that you're not speaking out in a way or at a time when it can turn on you because you're obviously dealing with someone who is, who is not capable of, of holding back their impulses. Mm-hmm. So my advice is to therapy is essential. Talking to someone that you trust is absolutely essential and do what you can to get on safe ground. There's a very poignant moment in the book with your child, and I'm not going to give this away because I want people to go out and read and buy The Wild Boy of Wabamick, a memoir, an inspiring story of resilience to find out. But there is a moment that just, I mean, I cried so many times during that book. I had to, I don't know. It was, uh, it was a lot. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you that Russell, who is the editor of the book, talks about, I think, the scene that you're referring to. And he's a father. And he says, every time he reads that, he cries. Yeah. <laughs> so full you're, on, you're full on crying, full on <laughs> crying. And also just, there's a lot of pathos in the person that you are, that you were just always a good person throughout it all. You really, you are a good person. It's so unfair well, that this happened to you. I, I could, well, I don't know if I can say this on the radio, but. Well, well it's interesting. My, my brother-in-law read an early draft and he said, can you kill him at the end of the book? And I went, <laughs> yeah. well, no, yeah. it's yeah. a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, people want that resolution. They do, um, they do. And I'm not a capital punishment guy, so that wouldn't have you know, happened <laughs> anyways. But, but if it was a fiction, perhaps I would have done that. I know that there are hotlines and helplines that are now available for children and for adults. What are some of the ways that people can reach out? If a child, now a child may not be listening to Zoomer radio, but somebody could tell yeah. that child, how to, wh- where do you start? There is an organization in Toronto, and I, I am speaking to the adults now, that if you suspect or uh, you know, there is an organization called Gatehouse in Toronto, mm-hmm. and I think they might have arms across Canada. They're certainly a really good organization. They deal specifically with adults and childhood trauma, and the, and it's a peer group. So everyone there has suffered childhood trauma, and they, they help each other, and there's psychologists and therapists there as well. But they also have an area where children can go, and the policeman and a police officer will come as well, and that is a safe place for the child to go and talk about what's happening. So that's that's a start. You know, most of my advice when I talk to people are adults who are in a situation they can reach out to therapists or other people. A child is hard, and this is what makes the, the crime so difficult, is that a child is locked in his own fear. A child, and if it's a family member, mm-hmm. good gosh, that you can't penetrate that. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think as even as a child, I called helplines. And mm-hmm. uh, I was just unfortunate. I always got the wrong person. But I'm sure helplines have now since are more aware. People are more aware of the crime. Children are more aware of it. People are speaking out about it, which is why I think speaking out is essential. It's not easy. It's it's not something I want to do. But, you know, and I'm not speaking about me. There's been hundreds of people before me who have spoken out and talked about this subject. We're more aware now. So I really hope the opportunity for children who are locked into this can somehow see that all they're feeling is part of the crime, is is part of the disease that they're feeling, mm-hmm. and that they can get help by just sort of jumping over those feelings and going to a helpline, uh, someone they trust, uh, 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 police services, whatever. Mm-hmm. I just think that as parents, educators, and just our listeners in general, we have to know that there's something we can do to help end childhood sexual abuse and violence. What can the public do? Like it, like. I'm just thinking that if you suspect something, act on it. So many people don't act on it. Yeah. What do you recommend to people who might be suspect? Like maybe 
some of your neighbors or some of the people in your town, but maybe in those days they didn't know what to do. But if somebody suspected it, what did they do? Report it. You know, I, I mean, there's there's no harm if you're if you're you're wrong, then that'll come that'll be clear soon. Uh, if you're not wrong, then you've saved a child uh, something horrific. Not everybody goes through ten years of uh, of abuse. Sometimes it happens just once, and that's enough. You know, no. sometimes it's just an unwanted grab, and that's enough. So. Like you say, Judy, people are more aware now. Again, someone once said, just because you have the disease doesn't mean that you're an expert. So I am no expert about how to deal with these things. I know what I did. I know what I lived through. I know what helped me. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm very fortunate and lucky. You know, I, I'm very privileged because of who I am, how I look. And when I mean that, I mean but by being white, it, it's it's just easier to get help and to, and to, Mm. you know, to break free of these things, not easy, but easier, easier. So I recognize that I'm privileged in that way. And I, I just hope that, uh, there's enough people speaking out. There's enough information that, uh, nobody has to be silent about it anymore. I know that even for people who undergo tragedy, loss, grief, we just did a show on grief and loss that there can be still joy and bliss alongside of it, which is such a miracle, really, and really illustrates that indomitable human spirit which you possess. And you were even able to find this in the darkest of days. And I found that unbelievable, actually. I think that's human nature. You know, we all want to survive. You know, there's there's kids, adults, women in war-torn countries that are being mm-hmm. bombed and things like that. And we mm-hmm. find a way to survive. We find a way to, mm-hmm. sadly, you know, in war-torn countries, it may, it's, it can be the norm because it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sad when that, when sexual abuse becomes the norm uh, and, and tragic, but we do find a way to survive. I think it's human nature. Don't, you know, it, I, you know, you asked me if I have any advice. It all sounds very trite. It all sounds very simple and, and ineffective, but don't give up on yourself. That's all I can, all I can think of saying. What is bliss for Tom Ernst these days? I love my book. I love, <laughs> the, I love the fact that I'm, I'm able to write more. My, I think I've said this every single time I've been on your show. It's my daughter and it's my wife. And it'll always be movies too. So there's, I, I got so many different blissful things happening that it's, it's hard to choose one. Um, but I'll narrow it down to my daughter who just constantly surprises me, even when she's being a teenager, which I'm, I'm not supposed to say I'm, I'm, I'm told, but you know, she is, she's going through whatever she goes through. And I still look at it and think it, it's just absolutely wonderful wow. that, uh, she's experiencing life. It's amazing. You're an amazing person. And I have to tell the audience that this book, The Wild Boy of Wabamek, a memoir, an inspiring story of resilience by Tom Ernst is really something special. It's an unbelievable testament to the power of the human spirit and the wonderfulness of your being, which was what makes it also so heartbreaking that you had to go through all of this. So I just wish you only joy and bliss and good health and only good things. Honestly, that's, that's my wish for you. And, and I want people to get this book because it's, uh, it's an incredible book. So congratulations. Thank you, Judy. Thank you. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media? Your favorite question. I don't know. <laughs> Moreover, what is the best way for people to get a copy of your incredible book, The Wild Boy of Wabamek? And I want to spell that for everyone. It's W-A-U-B-A-M-I-K. Available everywhere. Yeah. Tell us about it. Okay. Well, bookstores, and if they don't have them, ask for it. You know, I want, I'd love to see this on the shelves and I'd love to see it falling off the shelves. So, uh, yeah, please. It is in, in bookstores and, uh, you know, I, I understand it's a tough read, but it's also, I think in many ways, it can be a very rewarding read. So yeah, I hope people, I hope people look for it. And I, if it's not in whatever flying books, I bet not you even flying, flying horsemen. horsemen. <laughs> <laughs> flying books has it. Uh, I know bookstores Wordsworth in, in Waterloo. You know, I think Indigo should have it by now. So, and as far as getting caught, 
I don't know what it is about my social media. I just <laughs> never remember. I, I know my email address. That's about it. <laughs> okay, I know it. I know it. So I'm going to share it with our audience right now. So Tom Ernst is available on Instagram. He is on Instagram. I know that. At Ernst Tom, E-R-N-S-T-T-H-O-M. And there you are on Instagram. And on Facebook, I believe you're just Tom Ernst. Yeah, it's probably right. <laughs> TikTok, I, I have a feeling. TikTok's not happening, right? No, no TikTok. No TikTok. No TikTok, no. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Judy. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And our featured artist this week singing us out of the show is Juliana I. Juliana is a dynamic and unapologetic alternative pop artist and songwriter based out of Toronto, Canada. With pop at its core, her music draws influence from 90s and early 2000s alternative rock, indie, and dance music and pairs it with a hint of melancholy, nostalgia, and introspective lyrics. Born and raised in the Toronto suburb of North York, Juliana took to music obsessively at the early age of 13. And as an active teenage rebellion, she spent the majority of her adolescence playing guitar and writing songs in her bedroom jamming in basements with her friends' obscure bands and venturing to downtown clubs to watch local artists perform. Over the years, Juliana has participated in a number of musical projects in the Toronto music scene, as well as performing all across Canada, the U.S., U.K., and Europe as a live keyboard player and backup vocalist for various major labels and independent artists. Most recently, Juliana graduated from Metalworks Institute's audio production and engineering program and has since worked as an engineer and assistant engineer on a number of projects, including being our very own audio engineer at Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio. Since her first release in 2021, Juliana I has released four original singles as well as a self-produced cover of the 1979 Blondie classic, Dreaming, which has been featured on CBC's After Dark and Under the Covers, as well as Guelph University's Campus Radio. Juliana will be releasing her debut EP, Late Bloomer, in 2023. Let me tell you a little bit about the song you're about to hear, Juliana's song that she will be sharing with us today. Late to the Party is about the experience of an introvert and the burden of socializing while not feeling like your best self. It's an honest confession of feeling the need to mask your emotions in order to face the world when all you really want to do is hide away. It also has a deeper meaning of feeling chronically late to life and always seeming to miss out on experiences because you're too focused on survival or on your own healing. At the end of the day, you will still end up making it to the party. And that's the important part. It's always better to be late than never. Let's all have a listen to Late to the Party by Juliana I. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Juliana, your voice is so gorgeous. That was absolutely fantastic. Each week, we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or a musician on the show. If you're a singer, please reach out to us. And if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would really love to hear from you. 
Also, what did you love about today's show? Are there any guests or topics you would love us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Just write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm on Insight Timer as well. That's the number one free meditation app. And all you have to do is search up Judy Liebrack. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Tom Ernst, for being on the show today and to Juliana I for sharing her music with us. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, producer Nayira Amani, associate producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanuziello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. We're going to close out the show today with a short meditation, and this one is all about gratitude. So I invite you all just to recline back or lie back, get as comfortable as you can, switch off all the responses all over your body, and gently close your eyes. Just know there are so many paths to mindfulness, but one that I love is just to practice an attitude of gratitude. Let's all begin by taking in a nice deep breath, right in through the nose. Do that for the count of four. And you can hold it at the top for seven. And then at your own pace, let it all go to the count of eight. And whenever you're ready, let's all do that again. In through the nose, breathing in, holding it at the top, and then just letting it all go slowly and evenly, letting go and letting be. And just remember that gratitude can really increase abundance in all parts of your life. When we get into the practice of showing gratitude for everything, things can really change. Some great ways to begin are each night before you sleep, be thankful for three things in your life, no matter what kind of a day or a night you've had, because there's always something or someone to be thankful for. Sometimes when it's really hard to find something, just look around at nature, because nature always gives us so much to be thankful for. Pause here. Take in another deep breath and let it all go. Just notice all of the blessings in your life and stay in a place of gratitude whenever possible. To seal this in, let's just take in one more beautiful inhale. Right in, breathing in gratitude and letting everything else go. Letting go and letting be. And I want to thank you, I have gratitude, that you've joined me in this meditation. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrack, reminding you all to live in gratitude and take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.